You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and WattWatchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst and Renew Economy contributor. How are you, David? Giles, I'm very well. I trust all our listeners are well. And uh, I guess our special guest today has been making us all think about climate change some more. Well, he is. Yes, we'll get to um, Greg Bourne later. Uh, Greg Bourne, climate councillor. Former head of uh, your former chair of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and also uh, former head of BP in Australia, he was one of 28 climate scientists, engineers, um, academics, and researchers who very, very promptly put their name onto a very damning declaration on Monday, um, challenging the government about its rhetoric on emissions. Now, as we may well have seen in the headlines uh, last week and um, also in an extraordinary um, program on the ABC Insiders on Sunday, Angus Taylor insisting, contrary to all evidence, that um, emissions were going down. In fact, um, as the greenhouse gas data actually shows, they're going up over a yearly basis, are expected to go up out to 2020 and then go up even further to 2030. David, what did you make of it all? Well, you know, there are a number of issues here. One is about the accounting measurement uh, and whether we can actually use the Kyoto uh, credit um, uh, overflow or surplus, uh, which of course makes no using that surplus might enable us to technically meet our commitment, but as anyone with half a brain can understand, doesn't actually do anything to help reduce our global warming. A it's, point. A bit, it's a bit like having a cricket match, actually. And if you sort of win, maybe win one match by 120, you take that as a carryover into the next game or something. Uh, well, that's a nice thing if you can do it. But, uh, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> there are two other points to make. The first is, as has often been made by people who say Australia shouldn't do anything, that Australia doesn't make much difference to global climate uh, CO2 output. And, and to an ex- from one point of view, that's true. From another point of view, where, you know, in the top 15 world countries by GDP, depending on how you measure it, and our per capita emissions are high, and certainly our coal exports, are, um, you know, have, have a role to play. And so there's certainly an awful lot that can be done by setting an example, and Australia can afford to set an example so, uh, and, and, and just generally, you know, it's up to every country and every person, that's the basis of society, to do their duty. And uh, in this case, Australia's got a duty. It indeed it has, and it hasn't been doing much about it. Of course, if you go back right to the original Kyoto Agreement, Australia got like license to increase its emissions by 8% in that first period. In fact, even more if you take some of the sort of uh, the dodgy Lulu CF, um, the land and um, land clearing obligations, Pretty minimal reduction target by 2020. You mentioned um, per capita emissions and the government likes to say, well, we've brought them down more than the other country, but that's because they were so much higher than any other country. And of course, the big question is whether we can carry that carryover towards the Paris target now. I, I don't regard that as a question at all, Giles. I mean, it's quite clear to me that Australia needs to, the world needs to decarbonise. That's the essential point. Until you get that point, 
uh, all the other stuff, uh, you, you're just wasting your time until you understand that the world really does need to, and in fact, will decarbonize reasonably quickly. The reason why I say it will is because in the very end, mankind has a self-preservation uh, instinct, much like politicians coming into an election. Uh, and they will do what's necessary. But I must say, you do get despondent when you, I looked the other day at China and wrote this up for Renew Economy, which despite all the rhetoric and perhaps the truth in increased solar and wind, the fact is electricity production there is up about 18% in, in three years and uh, coal-fired electricity is up about 16%. So they've added about three Australias, that is 500 million tonnes, uh, 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 sorry, and Australia, uh, of carbon output, uh, you know, while we've been sitting around standing still. So it's certainly not just on Australia alone to do its job. Every other country has to not just uh, um, say the piece, but actually walk the piece. And when we get to the politics, this is what uh, I find hard to stomach. In some ways, I prefer the New South Wales uh, Liberals' position, which is that, you know, what they're doing is the right thing, which is nothing, uh, as opposed to the uh, federal Liberal position, where all of a sudden they are giving out the appearance of having got religion, um, when, in, of course, they've got nothing of the kind, and they're just making any announcement uh, about anything that they think will bring in a few votes. And I, 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 this just increases the cynicism that any normal person is going to have towards politicians. We need more statesmen. Uh, but let's get back to electricity. No, but look, it's an interesting point, because I think people, as we're going into the election campaign, are trying to make judgments and make sense of all these discussions. Um, but anyway, look, let's, we've probably got a good opportunity now to hear um, what Greg Bourne had to say. So this is uh, Greg Bourne uh, from the Climate Council talking earlier. Greg Bourne, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Hi Giles, delighted. You and 27 other climate scientists, energy experts and other academics and researchers issued this letter to the government the other day calling out what I think you describe as misleading statements about the state of climate policy and the emissions trajectory. Why did you do this? Look, too much has been going on recently with the government d deliberately misleading the public with regard to the emissions going down. Now, clearly this is to do with politics, clearly it's to do with you know, upcoming elections and so on. Uh, but it, the, the facts speak for themselves. The, uh, the government's own databases looking at emissions in the past, over the last five years, in fact, even before, they come out quarterly. They show that they are continually going up. The last quarter went down a tiny bit. But then the database with regard to forecasts show emissions continue to go up. And there are no real policies to change that around. So the government is actually making completely misleading statements and clearly for political reasons. It's an extraordinary situation, though, when you've got a government actually sort of... Uh, the data comes out, is produced by the government department. It says one thing very clearly, the emissions are going up. The environment... That document from the government says emissions are going up. They're expected to rise another 1% until 2020, and they're expected to rise another 4% after 2020 until 2030. And yet you have the energy minister, even after repeated questions on the ABC um, Insiders program, saying repeatedly that they're coming down. How do you explain this? 
Look, the, the only explanation I have is that it is trying to persuade uh, members, first probably of, of their own party, uh, supporters who may well vote for them, but who might be wavering that things are all okay, you know, she'll be right, mate, and all that sort of stuff, you know, we'll make the Paris targets in a canter. So being done for political reasons to bolster uh, a voting intention for them. You know, a, a more kindly um, explanation might be, well, um, the, the Prime Minister and the Minister haven't done their homework, but they're both intelligent people, you know, they, they do do their homework. So the only explanation in the end has to be, well, this is the politics of voting. It also is just downright misleading and outright lies, really, if you, if you think it another way. Um, there was another figure which intrigued me that was used by the government, about a $1.2 billion, billion sorry, tonne turnaround in the forecast and the emissions in the emissions task. I couldn't quite understand what the heck they were talking about. I presume this was some sort of trickery with the reversal of Kyoto credits, but it sounds like it's something more than that. Any idea what they're talking about? Yeah, look, it, it's, it's definitely more than that. If you go back in to the databases and the forecasts over the years, going back, you know, sort of e e even 10 years, what you see is a, a forecast of emissions, which is based on, and the population will grow and our economy, economy will be wonderful and we'll export more and more iron and more and more coal and onwards and upwards Australia as far as the economy. And therefore, this is what we predict the emissions will be like. Of course, the economy never actually works like that, and exports don't always work like that. So there's a continual revising down of that very optimistic trend. Now, that is um, something that you can't really take credit for unless the government wants to take credit for trashing the economy and trashing exports, which I don't think they want to do. So, you know, if you have a very high forecast and then you don't actually meet that forecast, oh, you've suddenly got to turn around. And that's what is being pointed at. Again, unbelievably misleading. There has been so little effort in terms of reducing emissions put in over the last uh, uh, five years. And in fact, downright roadblocks being put in over the last five years. This is an absolutely misleading set of statements. So, Greg, you're uh, now a councillor with the Climate Council, but you're a former chair of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and the former head of BP Australia. What's your sense now, um, talking to people out there in business and looking at the technologies about the speed of this transition that's happening at, out there and the ability to be able to use those technologies to reduce costs at very low cost and maybe even save money? Yeah, well, Giles, I think the key thing is, you know, we, we can see how the technologies have come through in the electricity sector, whether it be solar, wind, uh, storage, and some of the technologies with regard to distribution and transmission. Uh, and we can see how those prices are coming down, and that revolution is happening right around the world and will continue to do so. So we can see how emissions coming down in the renewable sector and the electricity sector uh, is going to really work very, very well. Unfortunately, when it comes down to emissions from the other sector, whether they be uh, agriculture, uh, stationary energy, uh, fugitive emissions, uh, they are still going up. Transport, for example, is one of the classics within Australia where we have something like, uh, you know, more than 20 million uh, cars. We can see that with the growth of population, cars grow. We can see emissions growing and forecasted to grow out into the future. 
and no policy whatsoever to produce to, to bring those uh, emissions down. So what we're seeing from the government is a is a focus on electricity because they can point to the renewable energy revolution, which they didn't really do much to bring about. Um, uh, indeed, they tried to stop it. <laughs> in try, indeed, they tried to stop it. Um, but very, very little in terms of policies to bring anything else down. So, you know, deeply frustrating, uh, without doubt, within Australia. What sort of policies would you like them to introduce? I mean, I can think of maybe transport might be an easy one, electric vehicles, but even that um, flagging of a policy by the government last week was a one-pager saying that electric vehicles would be nice and we should look at them. And then at the bottom, it even had a comment saying this is not necessarily the views of the government. So, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, look, so, what sort of things can we do economy-wide? Look, tra transport is, is a really key one. Um, you know, we, we don't have a car industry really in the country anymore. So making from the 1st of July of uh, this year or next year, all new vehicles coming into the country must be below a particular uh, fuel efficiency standard you set would be a first step. And sure, it would change our purchasing patterns, but that's the point, is to change the purchasing patterns away from gas guzzlers into hybrids and eventually into EVs. Uh, the, the government at federal level, state level, local government level, purchasing in their fleets hybrids, uh, purchasing EVs, you know, driving some of those things forward is the way you actually change it. Otherwise, all you do is you just get a pattern of continual population growth, continual car growth, and continual emissions growth. So the transport sector is something that can be done actually very, very, very quickly. And yet we're seeing nothing, a plan to do a plan. When it comes down to uh, the other industrial sectors, the key message really is we are going to bring emissions down in those sectors. Um, business after business after business, and indeed industry associations, are calling on the government, put a price on carbon, put a bloody price on carbon. It's the fastest way to move things forward. And whether you call it a tax or a price on carbon or a trading scheme or whatever, that is about the only way we're going to put in the incentives to bring about a transformation in the technologies of the stationary energy sectors. Agriculture is a very difficult area. Yes. It, it, look, it's interesting about the industry associations because if you just go back four or five years, they were actually calling um, for the carbon price to be repealed, um, many of them. So it's a bit frustrating that you know, we've now got ourselves in this mess and they've, and they've turned around. Um, agriculture, just, just run us very quickly through agriculture. Look, the, the key thing with the agricultural emissions is, is actually sort of the, the, the number of head of cattle, the, the, you know, the enteric fermentation, the manure, all that sort of stuff. Um, farmers are doing it tough throughout Australia. They really are doing it tough. They're also going to be at the brunt of the impacts of climate change. So to ask them to do much uh, at any one particular time is difficult. But setting the scene that we need some changes in farming practices is going to be key. It really is extremely important as we go forward. But I don't see much happening in that sector over the next uh, five years. But we must make a start. There seems to be a level of frustration, a deep level of frustration now amongst the experts and the academics and, um, and other people. Do you have hope that we can get back on the right track anytime soon? Um, I, I actually um, do have hope that we can get back on track, but it comes via technology and businesses seeing that this is the way the wind is blowing. But 
getting on track fast enough is where I um, uh, you know, get deeply frustrated at the moment, really deeply frustrated. If you know where you're going as an economy, you can plan what you want to do and how to get there. If you actually have leadership, if you actually have leadership, I'll say it again, um, in the fact that we are going to reduce our emissions, the messages then get out and people make the changes that, 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 that are necessary. But absent that leadership and uh, messages which are deliberately misleading allows people to just sit on their hands and wait. Um, Giles, th there was an important point that was made just, um, j just yesterday with regard to um, you know, the LNG being exported. And, and aren't we wonderful exporting lots of LNG? It helps displace coal in, in other countries. And, and yes, it does help displace coal. Uh, but every time we export coal, and we export a hell of a lot more coal than we do LNG, in a sense, that displaces renewable energy that could be going into another country. It displaces nuclear that could be going into those countries that actually do nuclear. You can't have it both ways. So in the end, we have to take a handle on our own emissions within our own country. We also have to start thinking about the emissions we create in other countries. Greg Bourne, um, thanks very much. And look, let's hope that we do see some leadership anytime soon. Thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you, Giles. So Greg Bourne sort of finishes off, uh, David, making the point about LNG. Um, the Australian government was very keen to lay or claim credit for the LNG exports, which they said must be reducing emissions elsewhere. But Greg Bourne made the point that, well, as long as Australia is exporting coal, then that's probably adding to emissions elsewhere. So you can't really have it both ways, is the, is the comment that, uh, that Greg Bourne made. But um, certainly a degree of frustration there in his voice. Well, you know, as someone that's followed the LNG industry from its very start, from when coal seam gas first made an appearance on the scene up until today, and uh, you see a lot of comments about it, uh, but one of the great ironies, but and, and irony, ironies in business are a normal sort of thing. Anyone that thinks that big business or anything just works in the way a textbook uh, would have you believe it does just hasn't been there. But I mean, the fact is we use coal in Queensland still very largely to produce the LNG. Coal-fired, the LNG industry, all the upstream side of it, is electrically powered. Now, that's great in the sense that it can all be remotely monitored. Uh, it, uh, um, uh, it reduces the noise of the actual processing plants and it reduces uh, the use of the gas in the processing plants. Uh, but it does result in a requirement for a lot of electricity. And uh, all of that electricity... Um, is uh, coal-fired for the most part. Indeed. But look, tell me about this. Um, this week you've been chairing a session on gas generation and um, what can you report back from that particular session and what some of the comments from the audience were? Well, the general expectation from people like Greg Jarvis uh, from Origin, um, from um, uh, AGL, uh, from Mark Collette from Energy Australia, is that we're going to see less gas-fired generation, but that gas-fired generation still has an important role to play on meeting peak demand on very hot days. And I think it's fair to say that there would have been a lot worse load shedding in Victoria and South Australia at the end of January this year if gas-fired generation hadn't been able to carry the day. Uh, forward, but the audience generally expects that gas-fired generation will lose market share in terms of energy. They think electricity prices are going to go up, and they think we will have an LNG import terminal coming into Australia within five years. And that's something um, uh, that I think, uh, whatever you might think about the carbon emissions, it will certainly re 
um, increase the diversity of sources of supply for gas and ensure that you know, we don't really have replacements. It's one thing to talk about gas and electricity, but we haven't got replacements for gas uh, so much yet in things like brick making and the like. Yes, I'm, I'm wondering what to, how to think about this new import terminal that's been proposed, AGL. Various people have proposed one, but in, the, in, in all likelihood, only one will be built because... Well, there are five, probably... five proposals, uh, Giles, uh, up there at the moment. Right, OK. So let's say one is built. Where will it get its gas from and, and, and how should we think about it? Will it, um, will it just simply just add, add more competition in the market? And, uh, and... Yes, the, the, the price of the gas is not going to be that different to the current price. I mean, the fact is that gas is uh, prohibitively expensive. You're getting demand destruction for gas at the moment, uh, which from the point of view of CO2 emissions is, is, is a good thing, I guess, except that uh, it tends to be replaced by coal in some cases or by solar in other cases in factories. Um, you're getting demand destruction and the, what this would just do is give security of supply it would say, you know, at the moment, uh, if you look at gas and just putting aside the renew economy thing and just looking at gas where it actually sits in today's economy, the fact is that New South Wales and Victoria are incredibly dependent on the Longford gas processing plant. If that plant went out of action in winter, uh, um, there would be really big problems for a lot of people. And so to have some diversity of supply uh, is a good thing. Just to underline the backup requirements um, for those really hot days, last week Victoria and South Australia got very toasty once again, quite extraordinarily for so late in the year and the first days of autumn. And um, I think you've mentioned briefly to me last week, I don't know whether you how much you plied into the, that data, but there was some extraordinary number about the increase in demand from those two states over those couple of days. Do you remember those numbers? Uh, I do, Giles. South Australian demand for the week, uh, which finished on uh, Sunday night, uh, was up 47% uh, over the previous corresponding period. Uh, uh, it's a small state, so, you know, big percentage swings are, 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 can be expected. But Victorian demand was up 18%. And um, even for the year to date, demand in the NEM is actually flat in terms of energy uh, compared with last year. It's just we've had the hot periods at different uh, bits of time. But Prices are certain, despite the fact that wind and solar are now contributing, and I include rooftop solar in that, they're now contributing 14.5% of total supply into the NEM, which is pretty much significant, 4 or 5, 6% more than last year. Mm. Despite that, uh, we are in fact seeing prices that are well up on last year, both in the pool prices and the um, FY19 and FY, so even FY20 flat load futures prices have also increased over last year. So again, we need to be cautious that this increase in supply uh, is actually going to help with prices. There's more going on there than you might expect. Well, one of the things that came out of the AEMO quarterly, quarterly report, review report, I think, for December was that black coal is setting the price more often and then gas for the rest of the time, and they made the observation that black coal price is very high. And it was interesting last week at the Snowy Hydro, um, or, or, or the press conference held by the government, to confirm $1.4 billion thrown into Snowy Hydro, that Paul Broad made the observation that just the coal generation costs just using you know just to pay for the coal supply 
was $56 a megawatt hour, which he said was vastly higher than the source of wind and solar that they've contracted through their recent tender. And even once you add the firming costs of um, storage, you're getting into the low into sub $60 a megawatt hour, which is around about the, just the fuel costs of black coal generators. So I guess for as long as black coal and gas are setting the prices in the market, the, pr the prices are going to be high. Well, and that's right. And gas and hydro uh, set the price quite a bit in Victoria uh, uh, and in hydro even in New South Wales. And you must give credit to AEMO and, and their and quarterly dynamics for, for putting that data out there. Uh, that's produced by Luke Summers that, uh, and a very good publication it is. Um, you know, no one's ever going to accuse Snowy of uh, putting the opposition case uh, <laughs> to, the, to the front. I think those coal costs are overstated um, at the, for the most part, um, to be honest. And I would say that the, um, you could $40 would be a reasonable number to use per megawatt hour for coal generation when you adjust for the ash quality. The fact is that here in New South Wales, uh, everyone has worse coal in their electricity than anywhere else in the world, pretty much outside of India. Um, um, we have crap coal and we happily put it into the generators and give it to people and tell them they should be happy. And when you adjust for that, you get to about $40 a megawatt hour. You can add on $10 for other costs. So it gets you to 50. And then I would say that CapEx, uh, stay in business CapEx, probably comes to close to $10 a megawatt hour. So that gets you to 60, which is sort of kind of close to where new wind and solar is. But uh, that's on cost. And the big thing the renewable industry always has to bear in mind when it's talking its book, Giles, as you know, is that cost is not the same as value. Yes, it's cheaper, but you need to have firming ability. Uh, coal at $60 uh, to, to someone who's a profit maximizer is worth far more than wind or solar at $60 because they can dispatch it whenever they want to. So you're not taking, um, you're taking at face value or not taking at face value Snowy's um, claim that they're getting, they're sourcing wind and solar at $40 a megawatt hour? They may be sourcing it at uh, $40 a megawatt hour, but <laughs> they're sourcing it at someone else's expense or someone else is very <laughs> optimistic of where they're getting it. You cannot at the moment, no, I don't think anyone seriously believes that in Australia, you can build wind or solar for $40 a megawatt hour. In fact, I've, I doubt myself that even the best wind sites can be done at less than $50 a megawatt hour. That's my own personal opinion. And I actually still think on all the cost numbers that I see that solar is higher than wind. Now, the PPA prices may, that are announced might be a bit lower, uh, but generally speaking, the developers are retaining uh, some of that pricing risk for themselves on the belief that they can get higher prices in, in, in the, the merchant market. market. Interesting. Snowy finally um, sent to us their, um, their little booklet, their 14-page booklet, which came out at the time of the press conference, but um, we didn't manage to get hold of it for a few days later. Um, did, did anything sort of leap out of that? This is this little big question about Snowy 2.0 and when it actually makes money or not. They haven't actually released much of the details of the business case. They kind of sort of went through a few of the items there. I was kind of a bit confused by it. One seems to be this idea that they're only going to be using less than one quarter of its capacity, at least out till about 2030, which seems to underline the case to me that maybe it's not quite as much needed as some people would say it would be. 
As we discussed last week, uh, Charles, the fundamental criticism of Snowy 2 is that it wasn't selected on merit. It was just uh, selected. <laughs> uh, and that's the same goes for Hydro Taz. There's no process. And this is, this, I think this is disgraceful, uh, frankly, that the federal government can be picking winners like that without putting everything through a proper process. Uh, and I think Snowy 2 would be much happier if it had been the winner as a result of a proper process rather than just being a, a true captain's pick. Um, let's put that to one side and let's not worry about the fact that there may be other pumped hydro projects that are, that are cheaper or not. And, you know, capacity utilisation in pumped hydro, well, it can't really be even as high as 50%, can it, when you think about it, because for every... Uh, say four hours that you're generating, you need to pump for five or six hours. So that automatically takes the capacity utilisation of generation down to below 50%. Um, and then the economics as far as that goes, for every hour that you generate, every extra hour that you generate on a day, uh, it's likely the spread between the pumping and the generating price will be narrower for that marginal hour, if you follow me. Like if you get the best hour of the day, assuming batteries haven't stolen it, um, uh, then it might be $70 differential. But, you know, the second best hour might only be $60 and so on and so forth. What you're telling me then is that it is not 24-7 power, but it can be dispatchable for long periods. Uh, Snowy could, can operate 24-7 uh, for two weeks at a time. Um, you'd have to be a good analyst to, uh, and that's great, but then it'd have to uh, pump for three weeks to fill itself up again. Uh, if, you want to, uh, if you want to assume that it's going to run on a daily cycle, which is the way most pumped hydro analysis is done, uh, then, you know, typically models are done on four or four hours of generation per day, which captures the evening and perhaps another, if you're lucky, the, the early morning peak, which in Australia is, is just about as big as the evening peak. Mm. Uh, uh, um, uh, it's also... Uh, worth noting uh, that that two weeks of stories that Snowy has, as we've remarked several times on this podcast, is 2,000 megawatts of power generation but, that can run for two weeks. But you could also put 4,000 megawatts or 6,000 megawatts or 8,000 megawatts in and run it for three or four days, assuming uh, everyone could put up with putting that many tunnels and things into the snowy mountains, which they probably can't. That'd, so, be, that'd be snowy three. And um, I'm not too sure. Are you sure about two weeks? It's 175 hours. I think that makes a week and a bit. Uh, that's uh, uh, probably good. That's much better, Giles. I, I <laughs> that's okay. That's need okay. some more sleep. <laughs> We've all been busy. Hey, look, just one other little project I want to mention before we tidy, um, sort of finish up for the um, for the week. Um, interesting. I listened to WinLab presentation last week. Now they're they're the um, that's the CSIRO spin-off specialist in wind monitoring that moved into wind development has been behind some of the best performing uh, wind farms in Australia, Colgar and Kayata down in Victoria. Um, identified Cooper's Gap for AGL and is building the Kennedy Wind Solar and Battery Hub, which is actually the the um, the, the first of its type in the world. But um, got a few problems happening up there, um, David, both with the connection issues, which uh, Roger Price was sounding off a bit, um, obviously got some sort of contracting issues and was talking about sort of re trying to capture some of the money back there, um, and also some flooding issues, which sort of stopped the Ergon people coming in and finalising the connection agreements. But um, Roger said had, had quite a bit to to say 
say about the connection process and some of the delays and added costs and the different regimes that have been imposed, um, but also just sort of... Yes, uh, you'd have to say welcome to the real world as opposed to the world of the uh, CSIRO. Now, that's unfair to Roger Price, who, who we've, uh, I greatly respect, who we've had on this podcast before and who is one of the most original thinkers uh, uh, in Australia on electricity. But nevertheless, the realities of running a business day to day uh, when you get floods, uh, when there are connection issues uh, and you have to declare force majeure, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. He's a small company with not a very big balance sheet and, you know, his projects have to stack up every single time. Mm, interesting. And he's also voicing frustration at some of the um, decisions by the Queensland government, um, particularly around that clean energy hub in the north there, not much moving forward on the transmission. And I've actually got to say the Queensland government's been very, very quiet, both about its own renewables um, tender, the RE400, which expressions of interest went out um, almost two years ago, and we've heard nothing about it since. So I'm not too sure what's going on there. I agree, Giles. We've been on that case a lot of times. Uh, you know, they're frankly not much better than federal liberals in sort of saying a lot of things and doing very little. Uh, it is true that they are setting up their renewable uh, generator in Queensland, um, retailer. Uh, but, you know, the, about Queensland, that's been bullshit so far. Let's not beat about the bush. Uh, it's been total bullshit and they're doing very little about it and I think they uh, need to do more. I guess that there's a lot of argument about Adani coal mine still and, and there's federal government federal election coming up where Queensland seats are going to be very important so let's not rock the boat. But that's bullshit too. I mean, if you've got a 50% renewable policy, then, you know, you've got do to it. live up to your words. <laughs> yes. You've got to live up to it. We don't, politicians are not put in place because they say things. They're put in place to actually do things. And one of the things you could say about Mike Baird is, you know, he was there to get something done. You might not like it, but he said what he was going to do and then he bloody well did it, you know. And then that's he, what you want from your leaders. And then he scarpered. Um, now back into banking. David, um, fantastic. Look, what's um, in, in, anything coming up in the next week? I'm just trying to think of um, a few things on the horizon. Um, I'm guessing that sometime in the next few weeks we should get a report from AEMO um, explaining in more detail about what happened with the load shedding in January. And um, I think there's a few other reports in the emissive too. And I think the Energy Market Commission has also been flooding us reports, but damned if I've got the time to actually look through them all. Well, we've got to get this transmissions thing sorted out. You've probably uh, not noticed any new announcements of new solar or wind farms recently. I was going to say, uh, yes. Uh, so it's what's not been announced that's uh, more of an issue than what has been announced. Uh, so we're in that time of consolidation at the moment. Uh, the good news, if you're a generator, is that prices are still, or someone thinking of developing, is that prices still look very high, higher than you would have thought. So there's maybe more market opportunity. Unfortunately, if you build it, you won't be able to connect it. <laughs> <laughs> Look on that cheerful note, on that cheerful note. We might just leave it there for today. Look, David, um, thank you very much once again. And thanks to our sponsors, What Watchers and Solaray Energy for your ongoing and continuing support. Um, it's really appreciative and um, I do recommend both their products. And um, we'll be back again at the same time next week, David. And um, best of luck in your activities in the next week. Indeed, Charles. Cheers now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today. 
Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.